Well, let's take our Bibles this morning, if you have them, and turn to Acts chapter 5 today. And uh, as you turn to Acts 5, this is the last message of our Game Changer series. And today, uh, the message is about a game-changing encounter. And I believe that when we walk through this text, you'll realize how much of a game changer it really is. One of the toughest passages in all of the book of Acts. One of the most uh, fearful texts that you can find in the Scripture, but it's a great, great word for us today. Uh, By the way, as we approach Easter this week, this is a big, big week for us all. And uh, I I would ask you to just do everything that you just heard in terms of inviting your people. But do you remember uh, the way we do the cross services? We give an invitation where I walk through the entire building asking people if they want to get up and follow me to the cross, that we're going to do that. And let me just say, that's always a walk of faith. And I'm going to do that again on Friday night. Then it's Saturday night up at the satellite at the North Campus. You pray for us during that time. I'm sure you do. I'm sure when I first began doing that, you used to pray, Lord, let the pastor not have to be all by himself that whole time. And, uh, but as time went on, you realized that God was really using that little walk through the building as a, a chance to bring people to, to Jesus, bring people to himself. And uh, so pray for us as we do that um, at both locations. And uh, it's going to be a great, great weekend. And I hope that you will think along the lines of what we've been saying. If, if someone were only going to live 10 more days and you knew they were going to live just 10 more days and you knew they were far from God, what would you do over the next 10 days to help them to come to Christ? And of course, being Easter weekend, there's some obvious answers to that question of what would you do? How would you try to help bring them to Christ? So uh, I want to encourage you this week, all week long, please pray as we prepare for that and as we come and celebrate. Then let me say one more word uh, to add on to what I shared last week about the emphasis on the building. Uh, I've been looking at the future for a number of years now, the last three years, just looking down the road, asking questions that a leader needs to ask. And that is, what do we best do to reach people in the years ahead here at our U.S. campus? One of our strategies is the satellite strategy, which we're very thrilled with. But we also know that one of our strategies must be that the U.S. campus, that first U.S. campus, has to be maximized to use it in the best possible way to, to reach the most people possible. Let me just say what I believe. I believe our best days are ahead of us, and I believe we have some work to do to get ready for those best days. And so, accordingly, we are planning, in a sense, of saying, how can we utilize our facilities the very best? And we're exploring a process that you learned about last week. And I'll tell you a lot more after Easter. We won't say anything in our Easter services about it at all. But here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to take away. This is not about just buildings or it's not just about uh, beautifying the campus. There are some real whys behind what we're doing because we want to reach and connect with guests and families and each other like never before, a central spot where we can do that. We also want to be extremely friendly to those that come to our church with preschoolers, with children, with students, so that they're not in a remote location, but as close as possible because there's a whole new generation to reach, and we're prepared to reach them with all that we do. But physically, our our physical plant needs some help there. We also want to look back at five years and 10 years and say, we made the decisions now like our forefathers here at First Euless did. And we made decisions now that allow us to be the best we can be in the years ahead, and it's really about that. So just do these three things. This is all you have to remember. If you missed last week, it's available online. What I shared for almost 20 minutes uh, is available online. You can see that. Secondly, join the conversation. Talk about the ideas you may have. Send us emails about those or questions you have. Send us questions about that, and then pray. Just pray. 
It's one thing to say pray, but it's another thing when you put it up on your top of your prayer list and you began to say, Lord, is this of you? Number one, Lord, what's my part? Lord, number three, will you bless your people as we reach out to impact more people for Christ? And let me just say, a church that will pray those three prayers will be a blessed church. I really believe that. God will lead us. He'll guide us individually, corporately. He'll also help us know what our part is. But when God finds a church and when he looks and sees a group of people who are faithful to the word and faithful to the gospel, he's going to put his hand on that church. I believe that with all of my heart. And we're in that process now. Okay. So let's stand and let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter five today. As we close with the most frightening and yet most eye-opening passage so far in our Game Changer series, Acts 5, beginning in verse 1. Now, the background is amazing things are happening in the body of Christ. This is the first picture of the church. What we're doing today in the year 2019 is very similar to what's going on in the year 35 AD and 40 AD during those years. After the days of Christ, the church began to gather. And we see that all through the book of Acts, Acts 1 through 4. But only in Acts chapter 5 do we hear the word church mentioned. It's mentioned for the first time. And the people in the church have enjoyed great unity, great harmony. They're of one heart, one soul. They're loving one another. They're generous. They're selfless. They're not coerced. They're doing everything the way the Spirit of God is working in their life. But into this environment comes a threat, and it's a threat we're looking at today that God encountered. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Acts chapter 5. And here's what it says. And a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all those who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her and said, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yeah, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Now, that's an interesting moment in the history of the church. Verse 10, and immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Now, this is not the end of the story. It goes on in verse 12 and said, At the hand of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. 
And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their numbers to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Now, what a text for us to look at today, both frightening and encouraging. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, I don't I don't see the encouragement in this text. There is some encouragement in this text. Would you pray with me today? Father, I ask you in Jesus' name to encourage us by the words in Acts chapter 5. But Lord, also make us very aware of why you do what you do and how you view the church. Lord, we ask that you speak to each heart today in some way in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated if you would. Well, what a text. If you want to know what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to ask the question, what does this text say about the church? Because this text says some powerful things about the church of Jesus Christ, things you need to know about. And then we ask the question, what does this text say about Satan? Because clearly in this text, Satan is at work in the church through Ananias and Sapphira. And then thirdly, we're going to say, what does this text say about God? Ultimately, the last question you ask about every passage of Scripture is, what do we learn about God? What do we know about God as a result of reading any verse of Scripture? So as we launch it, what does this church, what does it say about the church? And as the church unfolds, we learn some things. Let me give you some statements. By the way, today as I walk through this text, this is going to be as many points as I probably will ever ever share in a message. This means that there are lots of points to this text. This means if you're writing these out, then I pray for your right hand and your ability to keep up with me for one. Uh, this is what someone called a porcupine message, and basically that means it has too many points to count, right? But this, this message is one where I want to stick as closely to the text as I can. This is not something where you want to hear a lot from me. This is a text where you want to hear a lot from exactly what does this say, not just what does he say it says. Now, that's always true, but especially in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and following. So let's look at what it says, first of all, about the church. It says several things. First of all, it says the church is made up of all types of people. And verse 1 says, but a man named Ananias. Now, if you read the end of chapter 4, where we see this amazing picture of generosity. The whole church is learning generosity. And then it highlights one man named Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He actually sells a piece of property and lays the amount that proceeds at the apostles' feet. Then we jump into chapter 5, verse 1, with this new story about a couple of people that are very different from this Barnabas, this encouraging man. We have Ananias and Sapphira who sell land, but who don't lay all the proceeds at the apostles' feet. The story begins with a contrast. And the contrast in the church is that there are some that are generous and some who are honest, and then there are some that are fleshly and deceitful. Now, you, can't, you cannot have been involved in the church for long without knowing that there are all kinds of people in the church. Would you agree with me this morning? Not everybody is the same level of maturity. Not everybody is the same level of sincerity. Not everyone is at the same level of spiritual growth. Some are very spiritual. Some are very fleshly. Some are very honest. Some are very dishonest. We're all 
sinners who have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're all on a journey to grow into Christ. And Ananias and Sapphira are, are numbered as those who are part of the New Testament church, and they're a very different type than the one that we just read about in the life of Barnabas. So the church is made up of all types of people. I think that you'll agree with me. Why don't you turn to somebody on your right and say, all types of people. Would you do that? And then turn to somebody on your left and say the same thing. All types of people. We're all on a journey, all types of people. Here's what I've learned over the years. I've learned over the years not to be too disappointed in what I see in people's lives because I know there are all types of people in the church. If I put all my weight, if I put all of the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ on one or two people, I'm sure to be disillusioned. All of us over the course of our spiritual walk have seen people and known people in the church that we are disappointed by, disillusioned by, and that's just the nature of the church from day one. If you think it was any different in the day divide, think again, because the church is made up of all types of people and always will be, and we always want everyone to grow into Christ, but not everyone will, unfortunately, because of this little thing that we call free will. Church is made up of all kinds of people. Secondly, the church must walk in the fear and awe of God. As the story unfolds, we get to verse 4. And Peter says to Ananias, Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. To know this story is to realize that they had absolute freedom before they sowed the land, absolute freedom after they sowed the land as well. It was in their hands. It was in their possessions. The big thing that they did was to lie to God and lie to man about what they'd sowed it for and what they were given. They were trying to to get the same kind of reputation as Barnabas had gotten at the end of chapter 4. They were trying to use their sacrificial giving as a way to esteem their reputation. But the bottom line on all this is they weren't taking God seriously. That's what it's at. That's what it's about here. And let me just say to you, if you jump to the end of the story right away, you'll realize it's not a good thing to not take God serious. It's always a serious thing. They weren't taking God seriously. Maybe they had had religious background. Maybe they knew what it was to play the religious game before they became a part of the church. Maybe they knew that as a practitioner of religion, you can do certain things and be somewhat isolated, somewhat disconnected with God. That's true of people everywhere. But now that they're a part of a church, they're becoming acutely aware that every interaction, every act of worship, everything they do in the way of giving or serving or whatever is seen as serious in the eyes of God. You can't play games with God. The Israelites in the Old Testament knew God the Father and His power and His judgment. In the days of Jesus, it was evident that God had become flesh and, and no one denied the power or the presence of God in the life of Jesus. And now they're learning the same thing about the presence of the Holy Spirit. With Jesus ascended and with God the Father being dominantly talked about in the Old Testament, now the Holy Spirit is saying the same thing. God is present with you. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you must take your walk with God serious and walk in the fear and awe of God. You cannot have a foot in the world and a foot in the church. You cannot be compromised or divided without having to deal with God. God. Let me say that God wants your heart 
He wants all of you. This is, at the bottom line, not about just money. In fact, this message is not about money at all. It's about dealing with God treacherously. It's about dealing with God dishonestly. It's about not being real with God. George Barna has done a number of research studies on the nature of the church and the church in America. Recently came to a startling conclusion. He said 66% of adults in America would be categorized by his own definition as casual Christians. And by that he means cultural Christians. They generally agree that Jesus Christ walked on planet Earth, that he was crucified, that he died, he rose again the third day. They generally agree mentally, at least, with that, but they don't really walk with God. They don't really have a relationship with Jesus. 66% of adults in America. Another type of people in America, George Barna surveyed, he said, constituted about 16% of American adults who were committed believers in Jesus Christ. So 60% who name the name of Christ, who are just casual consumers of Christianity. They, they, they just want to be served by Christianity. They want to feel that they're spiritual, but only 16% of adults really are committed, convicted, Christ-following, God-fearing believers. We see that same kind of makeup in the New Testament church where there are those obviously that are not serious, and the church must walk in the fear and awe of God for us to know which one are we. I would ask you the question today, which one are you? Are you just a curious follower of Jesus, or are you a committed follower of Jesus? Uh, do you see the church as something that you are a consumer to, that caters to your needs, or do you see yourself as a part of the church that serves as the hands and feet and the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ on planet Earth? Incredibly important question. Another thing this says about the church is that we are accountable to God for our worship and for our witness. Ananias fell over and breathed his last, the scripture said, and great fear came over all those who heard it. And three hours later, his wife comes and the same thing happens to her in a very separate encounter. Let me, let me show you what this says to us today. It says the accountability we have before God is ours alone. Ananias and Sapphira may have conspired together but God dealt with Ananias first and then later on dealt with Sapphira separately. No one shelters you from the living God and no one sinks you in the sense of your spiritual life. Even though they conspired together, God dealt with each of them individually. In our Bible study time, when we studied this text this last week, one of our ladies that was in the Bible study said, you know, this is really a, a really interesting picture of a wife following her husband's lead, if you want to look at it from that perspective. And the conclusion, of course, is that while it's important for husbands and wives to walk together biblically, it's also important that we make decisions as though we stand before God individually. Salvation doesn't come to couples as a couple of people. It comes to individuals, and so does the spiritual walk. And here's what that leads us to conclude. Never blindly follow others in their dealings with God. Always know how you stand with God. Always know God's work in your life. That's why we pray, Lord, is this of you? Lord, what's my part? What, what am I supposed to understand about anything concerning your will? We're accountable to God for our worship and for our witness. And I want to encourage you to personally stand before the Lord in your daily walk. Personally do that because you stand before him in terms of accountability alone. Serious text. But it gets more serious. Because this passage also talks about Satan. 
What does the scripture say about Satan? Satan's first entrance into the church in terms of interruption. His first attempt to try to divide and, and ruin the church. Notice some things about what the scripture says about Satan. First of all, Satan will always, always attempt to deceive and to divide. Verse three, why has Satan filled your heart? Ananias was deceived and was led willingly to his lie. But Satan is alive and well. Let me tell you today that just in the same way that Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he attempts today to tempt Christians who want to follow Christ to some degree. He, he attempts to divert us. He attempts to pollute us. He attempts to try to divide us and deceive us. He's always at work in the church. Jesus said this to his disciples, the thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have a life and have it more abundantly. That abundant life that Jesus promises is often interrupted by the wiles and the schemes of the devil. He is at work to try to subvert your walk with Christ and to subvert the church itself. Now, the context of the church is an incredible context. Generosity, love, openness, one heart, one soul, and in comes Satan. Let me just say a couple of things about the way Satan works so you'll be aware. Satan uses our fleshly nature. He uses pride, covetousness, selfishness, ambition as a bait with a hook under it to entice us away from walking with Christ. He wants us to be disobedient. He wants us to lie to God and be deceptive with God. Be careful because Satan is very, very deceptive. He plays on your feelings, on your desires, or your, on your ambitions. He does everything in that way so that you'll be pulled away from your security in Christ. Now, I'm not a big fisherman, but I've got some friends with tackle boxes that broke the bank. I mean, they open up the tackle box and they have a lure for every kind of fish and a lure for every kind of fish and every kind of body of water, saltwater lures, and then freshwater lures, lures to get trout in mountain streams and then bass in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the ponds and the lakes across Texas. They have all kinds of lures for all kinds of fish and they use every one of them really, really well. Satan is like that. He knows what tempts you. He knows what will draw you away from Christ. And he attempts to do that all the time. This is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. We assume that they're believers because they're named as believers. We assume they're believers because God chastised them as he might chastise a true follower of Jesus Christ. But hear this. We may be influenced and led by Satan and the flesh, but we make the choice that leads to sin. The devil did not make them do it. You can't blame on the devil what you choose to do. You can't blame on the devil what you act on. Satan wants to deceive the church because really a divided culture needs a united church who have a whole heart for Christ. Jesus in John chapter 17 prayed for unity. And we've mentioned this in times past about how he prayed, Father, they may be one just as I and you are one. May the church also be one with me as I am with you. The incredible unity that he prayed for. And in this case, Satan moves in and tries to deceive and to divide. Now, the second truth about Satan is this. Satan's weapons against the church. Now, get this. Satan's weapons against the church. And I had to brace myself when I realized this. Satan's weapons against the church are in the church, are in 
the church. I had to read that over and over. I had to look all the way through Scripture to remind myself of that. I had to read the text over and over. In verse 4, he said, you've not lied to men, but God, there you are in the body, and yet you've been deceived by Satan. You've made a willful choice, and now Satan is using you to divide the church. All through this text, the personal pronouns you, your, are used nine times. And when God chooses to act with justice, he doesn't remove Satan. He removes Adonis and Sapphira. And the threat to the church is removed when those two are removed. Satan cannot work, and you need to get this heart, get this in your heart, get this in your mind. Satan cannot work where people refuse him entrance into their lives. He cannot use you if you don't open the door. He cannot use you if you don't give him space. But where you will give him space, as these two did, he can use you to deceive. He can use you to divide. So be careful. Don't be deceived. We learn all the way through Scripture. Isn't it interesting? That in the same way, the Holy Spirit uses all of us as individuals to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the same way, he works through us. Satan wants to work through us to deceive and divide. In the same way, Jesus wants us to be brought together in prayer and support and love and generosity and in witness to a lost world. Satan wants to use us to divide to deceive, to pervert, to keep us from being a real witness with the power of the Holy Spirit to the world. And so what we have to do is remember, be full of the Spirit and not filled with Satan's thoughts. Be filled with the Spirit and not filled with Satan's desires. We must resist what he does to us so that we can be full of the Spirit of God. Satan's weapons against the church are in the church. I've pastored for 35 years now. And I cannot remember one time when a threat to a church I pastored happened because somebody from the outside walked in. I cannot remember one time where some event from the outside caused what was on the inside to be somehow perverted or hurt or damaged in any way. It's always from the inside. Now, does that mean that we ought to be looking around at each other with suspicion? No, that doesn't mean that. It simply means that we need to be aware of how Satan works And we need to be aware of what it looks like. Most of the admonitions in Scripture where Paul warns the church, he warns us about how to see the telltale signs. Let me share some verses with you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, for example. It says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality and impurity and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, dispute, dissensions, factions, Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have already forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are warning flags for us as individuals, but warning flags for us also to spot those who might divide. Or in James 3, verse 13 through 17, one of these great verses that says, here's what you need to be looking for. It says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behaviors his deeds and the gentleness and wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. These are like warning flags that we need to be aware of in our own lives or in the lives of others. But this text gets more encouraging as we go along. What does this text say about God? 
What does it say about God? And I love this part because when you walk away today, you need to walk away knowing these things about God and the church. And here's number one, that God loves this church too much to let it be compromised. He loves this church too much to let it be compromised. And what God does seems drastic sometimes, but he doesn't want his bride to be compromised. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the love of God? In verse 10, it shows the awesomeness and the fearfulness of what he does. It says the Bible, in the Bible, and immediately she fell at his feet, referring to Sapphira, and breathed her last. And there's no doubt to me that God was using Ananias and Sapphira as an example to others, but ultimately what he was doing was protecting his church from the deception and the division that Satan would have brought in. Like Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. No one is allowed to corrupt the church. You know, over the years, I've learned this is true of a husband. I don't know a lot about how a bride feels, but I know how a husband feels. And you can say what you want to about me, but if you try to hurt my wife, you're in deep trouble. I mean, I can absorb a lot of abuse. I can absorb a lot of words you throw my way, but don't throw any words her way because I'm her protector, and I love her, and I consider her as one with me. That's points, right? I get points for that, don't I, baby? <laughs> Listen to me. Of all the pictures of the church that Scripture gives us, the bride is the most beautiful. Yes, she's the family of God. Yes, she's the body of Christ but she's also the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. And the protection of God is always going to take place with the church. And sometimes it sounds brutal, but the reality is he's protecting the bride so he can use her for his glory, for his honor, for his renown. I was reading about cancer this last week because a friend of mine learned that he has a tumor. And as I was reading, one of the things that I read was this. It's not anything that you haven't heard before. But it really gives a lot of insight into how cancer works. Cancer is the uncontrolled growth of abnormal cells in the body and develops when the body's normal control mechanism stops working. Old cells do not die and instead grow out of control, forming new abnormal cells, sometimes forming a mass of tissue called a tumor. It all starts within the body. It all starts because something is not dealt with inside the body. And that's what's happening in the New Testament church. Ananias and Sapphira are like a cancer in this church. And God does radical surgery to protect the church from their influence. That's how much God loves the church. The second thing it says about God is even more encouraging. And that is that God's mercy is more frequent than God's judgment. Somebody say amen. I mean to tell you. I am so glad. I'm so glad that this Ananias to fire thing doesn't happen every week. Aren't you? Somebody in here ought to be saying amen. Some of you may be afraid to say amen today. I'm so glad this doesn't happen every week. One of, the, one of the pastors in our study said, why do you think it doesn't happen any more than it does? And I said, I think it happens more than we think it does. But aren't you glad God's mercy shows up every day? Aren't you glad that his mercy is more frequent? His mercy is more powerful than even his judgment. And the reason I'm so grateful for that is because we all, amen, we all ought to fear the judgment of God in our lives. And we're all guilty in some way. But God's mercy reigns, and I'm glad. Now, this story, this story is so good. It ends in such a great way. 
And I want to show you the last thing about what God, what this text says about God. And here's what it says. It says, God is preparing the church to reach more people. Now, I didn't insert that point. That point is all over verse 14, 15, and 16. Now, you would think that with this kind of thing happening, people would be rushing away from the church. But that's not what happens. Instead of rushing away, as fearful as they may be, it drew them into the church. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, it says, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitude of men and women were constantly added to their number. That is, God kept bringing people in because the church was purified through the process and God kept adding to their number. And it goes on and talks about to such an extent they even carried the sick onto the streets and laid them at the feet of the disciples. Such a powerful picture because God's at work in all this. God's at work in uniting the people it's the only way for us to be one. He's at work in bringing generosity to our lives, help us to love one another. God is disciplining the church and cleaning the church, purifying the church. And it's God who adds to the church. As important as what we do is, it's more important that we have the it factor. The it factor is always that God adds to the church. Who moves hearts but God? Who moves lives except God? Amen. Jesus is cleansing the church. Jesus is leading the church. Jesus is protecting the church. Jesus is adding the church. And we want him to do all those things. You know, one of the lines in this passage is verse 13. I thought it was a very interesting line. I'll end with it. It says at the end of this encounter with Ananias and Sapphira, as a summary, Luke summarizes what's going on. He said, but none of the rest dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Great fear was happening. And none of the rest dared associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Seems to me we have kind of the opposite happening today. Everybody joins the church today, and they're not held in high esteem. But here, the rest dared not join them, but they held them in high esteem. You know what we want today? We want God to be working in our lives so seriously and so powerfully that there's no question that it's God that's at work and nothing else and no one else. We want to have the kind of encounters with God that are real, open, honest, transparent, letting God move us and change us to make us more like Jesus. We want to be serious believers, not curious believers, not consumers. We want to be committed followers of Christ. I'll tell you one of the reasons that it's so important that we be like that is because the days are coming where you'll find more persecution, more opposition, more who will oppose the further movement of the gospel, and we must be his church. We must be his church. Are you truly his church, his bride, his serious disciples? I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. I'm going to ask our counselors to come to the front. And as they come, they'll be available today. Let me just say, if you're a casual, curious follower of Jesus, that you need to make a decision and take a step away from curiosity towards commitment. And what does that mean? It simply means that you're putting all your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. You're allowing him to be your Savior and your Lord, your Master. It's not curiosity. It's not because of what you can get from him. It's because he is who he is. He's God. He's God. And you acknowledge him as Lord and Master and God over all. That's the kind of decision that leads one to say, I've been saved. I've been 
made a believer, a follower of Christ. And today that may be the decision that you need to make. There are others in the church today that may have made a very serious decision towards Christ in days past, but today you're a casual follower. You need to recommit your life to truly following Christ today because God is serious about those who call themselves believers. Maybe today you want to join the church. Let me say that God added to the church in that day and He can add to it in this day as well. I believe that. Maybe He's moving in your heart. Would you stand with me? Would you stand? And as we stand, join me in just a brief word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' name today, we ask you to move in our hearts and lives. We ask you today to help us move from being a casual follower to a committed follower of Jesus. Father, help us to take you seriously, to follow you wholeheartedly. So now it's the only way where you promised the abundant life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you respond to him today?